Hello, and welcome to the Hogan Cast, a weekly podcast where we discuss a variety of subjects. Each week, we talk about a different topic, from literature to travel and everything in between. Our episodes strive to be both conversational and informational, and our occasional interviews are hopefully entertaining. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Hogan Cast. It has been quite a long week since the last episode, perhaps one of the longest weeks in the history of mankind, but we are back with our ninth episode. We're almost at that key 10th episode that we talked about last time, so pretty excited for that. I hope everyone has had a great summer so far, and I guess in the spring as well, because it's been, like I said, an extremely, extremely long week between episodes, but we are back, and we are ready to talk about irony which is what we kind of decided we were going to talk about last week at the end of, well, yeah, yeah, last week at the end of the eighth episode, I said that irony would make a really cool topic for this week. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about irony. And I suppose there is no better way to introduce irony than to take your minds back, way, way back to February 1996. And the little earworm comes on the radio by Alanis Morissette called Ironic. Now, Alanis has gotten to a little bit of trouble over the years uh, because most people feel that those lyrics in that song are not ironic at all. And I kind of have to agree. Most of the lyrics are coincidental. I wouldn't say that anything really is ironic in the song. There's a couple that are pretty close. Probably the most closest one to real irony would be uh, the lyric that says, Mr. Play It Safe was afraid to fly. He packed his suitcase, kissed his kids goodbye, waited his whole whole damn life to take that flight, and as the plane crashed down, he thought, well, isn't this nice? That's pretty close to ironic because you wouldn't expect this guy who was afraid of flying to be on a plane in the first place. It's a little bit of a stretch. Most of the other ones are just bad luck or, or coincidence. You can make an argument for some of them for cosmic irony, which is like when the, the gods actually line up against you and are purposely trying to punish you, like the, the forces that be in the world, like the rain on your wedding day. You can kind of make the argument maybe a little bit that that's cosmic irony, but that's stretching it. In fact, saying any of the lyrics in the song are ironic is a bit of a stretch. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means by calling the song ironic with no lyrics that are really ironic in the song, then the song itself is ironic because you would expect a song named ironic to be ironic. So that is people who want to argue that Alanis Morissette is actually a genius, which she is a songwriting genius for sure, but that she did this ahead of time and, and made the song ironic by not making it ironic. I've seen some older interviews where she said that wasn't the case. She was just trying to pump out the song and she wasn't concerned if everything was ironic. And I've seen some other interviews where she kind of plays into that. Regardless, it's a great song whether it's ironic or not, uh, but she does get a lot of flack sometimes from people that say it's not ironic and she shouldn't call it ironic. And I even saw some people rewrite some of the lyrics to actually make them ironic. It's still a great song regardless. But what we're here to talk about today is irony. And so what is irony? Well, it's not easy to define because there are different types of irony. When you come to literature, you have three main types of irony. You have verbal irony, you have situational irony, and you have dramatic irony. Those are the three main types of irony that you'll find in 
literature or, or even plays and things like that. For the most part, those three types of irony are the most common. And then you can kind of get into cosmic irony, which I, I talked about a little bit. That's when like the, the, the universe is lining up against you. But that's, that's more rare than the other three types. So let's just talk a little bit about each type really quick. And then I'll go back through again and give you some examples. Verbal irony it's pretty close to sarcasm. Verbal irony is when you say something that you really don't mean. It'd be raining and you say, oh, what great weather we're having. So it's really close to sarcasm. There are some differences. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but verbal irony is really, really close to sarcasm. It has that, in, in certain cases, it can be almost, sar it is almost like just straight sarcasm. But in short stories and, and literature and things like that, it's, it can be a little bit more, complex in that and we'll talk about that a little bit later so situational irony is when something happens that is the complete opposite of what you would expect to happen like the fire department burns down or something like that you know that that's situational irony like there's no reason that the fire department should burn down because i mean the firemen are right there so that's kind of situational irony and we'll, we'll get a little bit more back into that later on and the final kind is dramatic irony and dramatic irony is when the audience knows something that the characters in the story or the play or the movie do not know and there's some really great examples of that you know in horror flicks where maybe the the final girl is trying to run away from the killer and she locks herself in a room where we saw the killer go in just a few minutes later or something like that she doesn't know but we the audience know that's dramatic irony when the audience knows something that the characters in the play story or whatever do not know. So let's go all the way back to um, verbal irony. I think we started on verbal irony, so let's go back to that. Verbal irony, like I said, is saying things that you don't really mean. You know, in the most simplest form, it'd be like saying, like I said, the weather's really nice when it's raining outside. But in more complex forms, it can be a little bit more nuanced than that. And, and let's go back to another Edgar Allan Poe story. One of my favorite Edgar Allan Poe stories and I'm sure I'm going to say what it is wrong, but it's called The Cask of Amontillado. And The Cask of Amontillado is a story about our narrator who was extremely insulted by something that one of his colleagues, friends, peers named Fortunato, another that, that name, fortunate one comes back because that's ironic in itself because um, he's not fortunate. And our narrator, Montresor, wants revenge for a thousand wrongs. We're never told what the wrongs are and it's highly unlikely that what the wrongs were uh, justified what he did to uh, Fortunato in the story. But that's the that's the stepping off point. We're introduced and, and Montresor is telling us that Fortunato has wronged him like a thousand times and, and he's going to get his revenge and he's going to have to know he want he wants him to know that he will that he has wronged him before he dies. So he doesn't just want to kill him without him knowing why he wants him to know and he wants he wants to make him suffer very much. So what he does is. He knows that Fortunato is like a wine connoisseur and he decides that he's going to lure him to his family's crypt. Now, Montresor is from a family that used to be very powerful, very rich, very influential. But over the years, they have waned. They're not that powerful anymore. Their, their family fortune is almost gone. Really, all they have left is their family estate. And under the family estate sits this huge 
network of catacomb. So he tells Fortunato, okay, I have this really rare wine, this Amontillado. I want you to try. I'm not sure that's what it is. I bought it. I'm not sure that's what it is. I want you to come tell me, like taste it because I know you're a great wine taster and you'll be able to tell me if it's really Amontillado or not. And the first Fortunato was like, no, I'm too busy or whatever. But then he says, okay, well, I'll ask. Um, I forget the other guy's name. And Fortunato is, you know, he's offended. He's like, oh, he wouldn't know you know, a red wine from a white wine or whatever. I'll, I'll go case your Amontillado. So the first stage of his plan is correct. And he kind of lures him down into the dungeon or the catacombs. And as they're walking, uh, Fortunato coughs a couple times because it's filled with nitrate on the, on the walls and it's irritating his, um, his lungs. So there's a couple of points where Fortunato is coughing and Montresor is like, oh, you know, Let's go back. You know, I don't want your health is too precious to me. You know, you're rich, respected, admired um, as I once was. You're a man to be missed. I, I can't be responsible for for your death. It would, you know, it would crush me if, if I was the reason for your death. And, you know, fortunately, I was like, oh, the cough won't kill me. And, and then Montresor says, true, true. I replied, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's not okay. But that first part where he's like, really like, I'm so I'm so worried about you. I don't want you to die. Um, that's verbal irony because he's definitely going to kill this guy. And what he does, to make a long story short, I don't want to spend uh, 30 minutes per story like last week, but they get down farther and farther into the catacombs, and uh, Fortunato's like, well, where is where is the Amontillado? He's like, oh, it's in this little, like a recess into the wall. And he says, oh, it's in there. And so Fortunato's been drinking the whole time. He's already drunk. And uh, he goes in and, like he kind of sits down or whatever and, and Montresor really quickly like chains him to the wall. One thing I didn't mention is that Fortunato is like a costume party. So he's dressed like a fool. He has the, little, the hat with the bells and stuff like that. So you can hear the bells jingling. Montresor chains him to the wall and he starts to brick him in like brick by brick. Fortunato is like, first he thinks it's a joke. He's laughing and then like gets to that point where it's like that last brick. And of course, at that point, he's sobered up. And he's like, oh my God, you know what? Don't do it, man. What are you doing? For the love of God. And Montresor just bricks him in. And he hears the bells jingling. And then you cut to the end of the story and you find out that he's telling this story like 50 years later. So he never got punished. He never got in trouble. Fortunato is still walled up in the, in the catacombs. So that's a very short version of a very awesome short story. But there's a lot of verbal irony in there. A lot, um, and there's a, there's a, there's some um, situational and dramatic irony as well. Uh, but I have I have some better examples of dramatic irony. I have one one really good example of uh, dramatic irony, and that is there's a Greek play called Oedipus or Oedipus the King, and it's where we get the Oedipus complex Oedipus complex in psychology that that Freud kind of termed where you have like this unconscious desire for your mother which is completely unfair to Oedipus because, okay, so Oedipus was born as a prince, but his father went to the oracle and the oracle said that his son will kill him. So he had a servant, he nailed Oedipus's feet together and supposedly threw him over the hill to die. But the servant couldn't do it. And he took him to a neighboring kingdom where he was also raised like as a prince. And, um, when Oedipus got old enough, he also went to the oracle, and the oracle said, yeah, it's the same thing to him. You will kill your father, and you will marry your mother. He also told uh, his, father, his real father that he would marry his mother as well. So Oedipus is obviously horrified, 
and he flees and he he's going towards his kingdom which i think is thebes i think thebes is where he's originally from been a while since i read it sorry on the road he encounters this guy who won't give way kind of a prick they get in an argument and Oedipus kills him he doesn't think anything of it and he goes on to thebes and when he gets to thebes he finds out that the king is missing and that there is a great sphinx that is terrorizing thebes and whoever can kill the sphinx will be able to marry the now presumably widowed uh, queen, Jocasta, uh, and become king of Thebes. So Oedipus goes, and, and it's probably one of the most famous, well, it's a little bit tricky, because we don't really know if it's the riddle, but what has been described as the riddle of the Sphinx has become one of the most famous riddles in, in history. And we don't really know if it's the, the real riddle, but the riddle that's often said to be the riddle that Oedipus solved is what goes on what creature goes on four legs in the morning two legs in the afternoon and three legs in the evening right or some something along those lines and uh of course it's man who crawls on all fours when he's a baby in the morning of his life in the afternoon in the middle of his life he walks on two legs and then in his old age in the twilight or evening of his life he uses a cane so he goes on three legs now we're not 100 sure that that is the riddle but that's that's usually what's attributed to it Regardless of what the riddle was, Oedipus solves it, and the Sphinx is so enraged that it literally thrashes itself to death in such anger. So Oedipus is a hero. He becomes king of Thebes, marries the queen Jocasta, who they have, what, two daughters, three daughters? I can't remember. Who are also big parts of other Greek tragedy plays. So anyway, a few years go by, and there is a plague on that is spreading throughout Thebes and nobody knows why they know the gods are angry Apollo in particular but nobody knows why long story short <laughs> Oedipus is told by a prophet or, or an oracle that Apollo is angry because the killer of the king is unfound hasn't been found someone in the land is you know embarrassing the throne and doing horrible things incestuous relationships blah 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 so the gods are punishing Thebes, and, and Oedipus vows, you know, when I find out who does it, I will drive them from this land, you know, no matter who he is. Not knowing that it is, of course, him. He fleed from his adopted family, thinking they were his real family, because he never knew, and came to Thebes, which is where his real father and mother were, killed his father on the road, his king, the king was the guy on the road that he killed, and married the queen who was his mother. So he is the reason for the plague. So when this finally comes to light, which is at the very end of the play, Jocasta is disgusted, she kills herself, and Oedipus is so upset with what he has done that he can't force himself to look upon his children or the body of his wife or anything more. And he takes Jocasta's, uh, these long pins uh, that she used like as brooches, and he claws his own eyeballs out with these great big needle pins. Yeah. He doesn't die, but he obviously stops being king and he passes the, the throne to um, his brother-in-law. I want to say it's Crassius or something like that. I can't remember his name. Uh, but anyway, and that's how the story ends. And that, that the best example of dramatic irony is we know, or, or maybe you don't know because you didn't know the legends, but the Greeks knew the legends already. They knew the story of Oedipus. So they knew that Jocasta was his mother, that he killed his father on the road. They knew all this going into it. The audience knew what the characters in the play did not. Now, for situational irony, if you remember, I said, 
for the cask and the Montalado that Montresor makes a point at the beginning of the story to tell the readers that he wants Fortunato to know that he has been tricked and that Montresor was the one that got him. But by the end of the story, Fortunato is so freaking drunk. He has no idea what Montresor is walling him up in this cave for, or this wall for. And he's never told. Montresor never says, oh, this is for all the bad stuff you did to me over the years. He's never told that. So that situation we're ironing away that we expect at the end that Montresor is going to do this big, you know, Count of Monte Cristo moment, like reveal. But he doesn't. He just walls him up drunk and leaves him there. In the Lord, like the Lord of the Rings picking the hobbits to do this gigantic task of destroying the room or the ring, the one ring is, is kind of situational irony. You have all these elf heroes and, and men heroes and dwarf heroes, and you're picking the, those who are presumed to be the weakest of the weak to go on this mission to save the entire planet. That's kind of situational irony. You would not expect Frodo and Sam to be the ones to get the ring to Mordor. So, I mean, there's a lot of examples of situational irony. And situational irony is the one that usually happens the most in real life. You know, the police station gets robbed, that happens. But that's situational, a situational irony. So, those are the, the three main kinds of irony that you find in literature. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's irony summarized. I'm not, like, the greatest English mind of all time. I may have messed some stuff up. I didn't want to sit here and reread you know, those stories I was mentioning verbatim to you again, like I did last week, like I, I kind of did during the last story. But I did want to talk about irony because I think it's a really cool topic um, and, and something that, you know, a lot of people don't really know what it means or, or they get it confused with other things. And I don't want to blame Alanis Morissette for it, but a lot of people think that like if it rains on your wedding day, that that's ironic and it's not ironic at all. It's not her fault. Um, and also, like I saw Ricky Gervais talking about his new special. I watched a little bit of the new special. And at the beginning, he says, oh, I'm going to give you a definition of irony to explain my jokes. It's when I tell you something, but I mean something else, um, which is verbal irony, but that's not just irony by itself. You know, if I was, somebody asked me what irony was right off the bat, like what would be the most definition of something ironic? I would probably more than like give them the definition of situational irony. Like when the most unexpected thing happens, like, to me, that describes irony more than verbal irony. I think a lot of people view verbal irony as sarcasm. And they're not the same, but they are very, very similar. There are a lot of different theories on what's different about them. So when you have something like that, when there's competing views on how they're different, then you know that it's a confusing topic to separate sarcasm and verbal irony. But I just wanted to talk about irony. And that's what I did for the last 20 months. So now what are we going to talk about? So obviously, as you have seen... There's been quite a bit of time in between episodes, maybe a little bit more than a week on certain occasions. I, I apologize for that. I get busy. Actually, I'm not even going to lie. I, I wish I could say that I get really busy and I have all this important stuff to do. I have work to do and I had college to do. I, I just finished probably my last semester before I have to do my final project for uh, my master's in, in communications. So I was I was pretty busy and I went I went overseas for a while, went on a trip. Maybe I'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. You work all day and then you come home, podcast. Sometimes I really want to do it and sometimes I don't. I started it a couple of times and then I kind of paused it or didn't do it. So I'll try to reduce the time between episodes. As I always say, I wish I could pretend like I'm a very important person. <laughs> But a lot of times, you know, I come home from work and I just want to play video games or I want to watch stuff on TV. Like right now I'm watching, obviously, the new ep the new season of Stranger Things. 
Um, I watched Obi-Wan. I watched Moon Knight since the last the last episode. I want to see Top Gun Maverick. And I'm reading a really cool new book. It's called My Best Friend's Exorcism. I think it's a really awesome book. I recommend it if you like kind of campy 80s horror movies. It's kind of like a campy 80s horror movie in a book. And it's really good so far. I'm about 150 pages in and I'm, I'm really digging it. Maybe one day I'll write my own book. But that's easier said than done. But thank you guys for listening Again, I really appreciate my listener, maybe listeners from time to time. And I'll try not to have such a long week between this episode and the 10th episode. I'm trying to think of something kind of cool to do for the 10th episode, something that I haven't done before to make it unique from all the other episodes. So we'll see how that goes. But until then, please reach out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, The Hogan Cast. Just search for that. We're on all of them. Or you can email me at thehogancast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to take any suggestions, anything you want to talk about. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope you guys have a great week and a wonderful weekend. Sayonara. Sayonara.